Galatians chapter 6. The letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians revolves around the issue of the people of God, as do most of his letters. That is, who belongs to the family of God? How does one become a part of the family of God? And how is one to behave as a member of the family of God? Well, I think Paul's position on the first two questions is clear. As he stood opposed to the men from Jerusalem who had told the Galatians that to be a part of the people of God, they would have to keep the law, including the right of circumcision. The men from Jerusalem, as we've seen, want to tell the story of the people of God beginning with Moses and the giving of the law. Paul, on the other hand, begins with Abraham and the giving of the promise. A story in which, by the way, the giving of the law is simply an intervening story. It is the story of the law that shows the need of the promise and the need of the Messiah. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the end of the story of the law. As Paul would later write to the Romans, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But how does this all fit together? How does one become a part of the family of God? Well, as we've seen in Galatians, previous identities are irrelevant. Peter, uh, Paul says this to Peter and the other Jews, that who they are as Jews is irrelevant if they are going to put their faith in Jesus the Messiah. Paul tells them the reality of conversion requires a death to the old identity, an identity that is quite apart from God, and it requires a new identity. This is seen in being united with Jesus. This is made possible because of the love that God has shown us. Either we are united with Christ in his death, we have a new identity, or as Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 21, Christ died for nothing. His death on the cross meant nothing. So the issue is not a question of personal identity. Rather, it is the setting aside of an identity apart from God. That is, this is who I want to be, rather than this is who God, in fact, wants me to be. In the latter part of this letter that we've been looking at the last few weeks, Paul tackles this issue from another angle, when he contrasts flesh with spirit. I said there were three questions. The third question is the one about which there is much disagreement. How is one supposed to behave as a member of the family of God? As Christians, we are the children of God. We are united with Christ. We have the Spirit of God who calls out Abba, Father. And as Paul writes, you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. How are we supposed to behave? Uh, In academic writing, at this point, there would be a footnote or an endnote. But I want, I want to acknowledge uh, Ken Meyer's work with the Mars Hill Audio Journal, as well as Victor Lee Austin. I mentioned last week his book, Up With Authority, Why We Need Authority to Flourish as Human Beings. If you look at a flourishing, a healthy society, among the components or the ingredients that you expect to find, character, community, and under community would have civility and neighborliness, conviction, and the courage to advance the common good. Now, I have an assumption here, I'm taking it as a given, that we as the people of God, as the church of God, we are a new society. 
That is the theme in the book of Ephesians. And so when we look at a healthy human society, I think we can look at that and say, okay, this is what we should find among the people of God. So we have character, community, conviction, and courage. But we should add one more, and that is authority. See, character can only be sustained if people have an inner sense of authority. Um, If you always have to tell people what to do and have people on the corner, every corner with a gun to make sure people do the right thing, you don't really have character. You have people who are obeying the laws because they're scared of the consequences, but you really don't have character. Yes, we do have laws, because there are people who choose to live outside the law. That's why we call them outlaws. They they choose not to live within the character of a given community. In the past century, community, a sense of community, as well as authority, have come unraveled together, if you look at American society. Many people mourn the passing of community. Oh, people aren't good neighbors anymore. But you rarely hear people mourning the passing of authority. Alan Ehrenhardt, in his book, The Lost City, The Forgotten Virtues of Community in America, says that to most Americans born in the baby boom generation, authority has sinister connotations. Rebellion is the defining event of their life. Since World War II in this country, the questioning of authority has been institutionalized. It's sort of a rule to live by. Rebellion is the new conformity. How ironic is that? And to defer to someone else or to obey someone else is regarded as the habits of zombies or cult members, not free and mature adults. I would argue that this thinking has infected the church, the people of God. So we hear in the church people saying we need a greater sense of community. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't hear anyone speaking about authority. And if we're not careful, it will, uh, it will profoundly affect, in a very bad way, how we understand what Paul writes to the Galatians. Like the people around us, we tend to reject authority, and then we come to Galatians and we're like, well, that, that totally makes sense. Paul rejects the law and embraces grace. And so we should reject authority and just sort of live by grace. And then we think of the verse in Romans 6, you are not under law, but under grace. And after all the negative things that Paul has said about the law in this book, we might see God's grace as anti-law or in the value system of our, our culture We get to do whatever we want. If we are under grace, we can do what we want. I would argue it is the darkness of our twisted hearts that we take the gift of God, God's grace, and use it to meet our own goal, and that is the rejection of authority and the freedom to do whatever we want. I mentioned this last Sunday, that if we think about the matter of authority in terms of the paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, I think naturally we want to say, It is in the fall where you have authority that authority is necessary. That in creation everything was fine and when we get to heaven everything will be fine. Um, Yeah, it's in the fall that we have the need for authority. Um, But this fails to appreciate and to understand what it means to be human. As Austin says, authority is built into what it means to be human. 
and we will never escape from needing it for our flourishing. As I mentioned again last week, in his conclusion, his book, Authority and Paradise, it begins, It is not sin that makes authority necessary. Rather, even if human beings were unencumbered by sin, they would still need authority in order to flourish. Even in heaven, we will be under God's authority. Tom gently reminded us last Sunday after the service that all humanity is, in fact, under God's authority. We just don't recognize it. I would say, parenthetically, I think people do submit to authority. They simply choose what authority they're going to submit to. They would rather submit to anyone rather than to God. The Ten Commandments begin, You shall have no other gods before me. That is to say, God is to be the authority in our lives. The problem is people don't recognize that authority. They want to go their own way and people live in rebellion. Paul calls this state flesh. And due to our humanness and all its fallenness, we see authority as the enemy of freedom. And at this point, as American Christians, we trot out verses like, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Or from here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has made you free. And then we bring in Romans 6 again. You are not under law, but under grace. And as a result, you see many people, many Christians, rejecting any notion of authority. But again, I'm convinced that as human beings, we were made to be under authority. And when we reject the right authority, the wrong authority will come in. And that's true in the church. That rather than being under God's authority, we will look to leadership or to legalism to tell us what to do. Paul is not telling the Galatians and us that the gospel has eliminated the need for authority. As though the law had no place in the life of the believer. Rather, that it is only through Jesus, the crucified Messiah, that we can have new life and receive the Spirit of God. And having a new life and having the Spirit of God does not mean that we get to do what we want, that we have the freedom to do as we please. It's quite the opposite. This is why Paul writes what he does, particularly here in chapter 6. We just hear it differently from what he meant. We hear about the fruit of the Spirit. As I said last week, we think, well, that's nice. I'll allow the Spirit to bear fruit in my life. And the Spirit is seen as a guest in our lives. He lives within us with our approval. He makes gentle suggestions. He may be ignored, that he's not the boss of us. This is a rejection of God's authority. It is a deeply flawed view of God's work in our lives. When we read phrases like, live by the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, if we're not careful, being 21st century Americans, we will think that this is optional. That Paul is saying, yeah, come on, you should do this. This is a good thing. You know, you're the people of God. This is a good thing for you to do. And like those around us, we reject the authority of the Spirit and we baptize it in the words of grace. In grace, I have all kinds of freedom. There's a side issue that we may revisit after we finish our study here in Galatians, and that's the issue of goodness and happiness. That is that many think, and a few would say it out loud, I think, that you have a choice. You can either be good or you can be happy. 
but not both. Um, And when you speak of authority, the very hint of the presence of authority means that's a threat to my happiness. I was going to be happy and then all of a sudden there's an authority over me telling me what to do. Oh, sure, you can be good, but will you be happy? In this view, God is seen as trying to remove all the joy, all the happiness from our lives by telling us what to do, by telling us what we cannot do. And in this view, to be a good person cannot, is not seen as being the same as a happy person. How sad this is and how wrong this is. God made us. He knows how we are supposed to act. And so when he tells us, this is what you're supposed to do, don't do these things, do these things, it's not because he wants us to be miserable, it's because, in fact, he wants us to act what we were made for. But we are in rebellion. And so we almost take, a, dare I say, devilish delight in the things that are wrong. And we see this in various aspects of our culture. Take literature. Uh, P.D. James, one of my favorite writers, um, has written a series, I think 14 at this point, um, detective murder uh, novels. Uh, Adam Dogwish is the detective. She was asked, uh, Ken Myers interviewed her years ago, why it is easier for a novelist to portray evil or an evil character than a good one. And she answered, I suppose that wickedness reveals itself more often in action. Goodness also does, but on a quieter plane. Good people very often reveal their goodness through the whole of the quiet revelation of their character in the ordinary events of life. She went on to say, wickedness is more dramatic. Goodness is seldom dramatic. It's easier to write about the dramatic. I hope to come back to this because I'm I'm convinced we really miss the boat if we think that the call of Christ is a call to a life of misery. And I remember very distinctly years ago, uh, someone who had wandered far from God and called me up and wanted me, in a sense, to fix it and to tell her what to do. And I told her what she needed to do, that she needed to repent and come back to Christ. And she said, but if I do that, he'll make me go live in the desert. I thought, what do you think of God? What are your thoughts of God? That you think that God wants you to be miserable? He made you. He knows what is best for you. And we must submit to that authority in order to be happy and to be the people he wants us to be. Let's get back to the question, though. How how is one to behave as a member of the family of God? We are to behave as those who recognize the authority of God in our lives. Otherwise, what Paul tells us in much of his writing is completely useless. How dare he tell us how we're supposed to act? We're under grace, not law. We get to do what we want. Paul dares because we, as God's people, are under divine authority. Austin writes in his book, Since authority exists within God's own being, redeemed humanity will be forever within authority. There will never be a time when we are not under authority. Later he writes, Sin is the reason authority strikes us so hard. It really does. It strikes us so hard. But sin is not the reason we need authority. Authority points to what is true about human beings in their best condition as full and complete beings living in friendship with one another. 
let us realize, let us recognize what Paul is saying. There is a certain behavior that is to mark the people of God, the children of God. Those who call God their father. Thus we have Galatians chapter 6. And one of the primary principles that is to guide us as we are under God's authority, as we act as the people of God, is found in this. This is, I think, the first principle Paul lays out, that Christian, the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. We are intimately joined to one another, just as we are intimately joined to Jesus Christ. And we hear this in the first two verses of chapter 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. When we carry each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. As I said earlier, you know, after what we've read in the book of Galatians, we might be surprised to hear the law spoken of in a positive way. The law of Christ, we thought that law was sort of a four-letter word, you know, something that we don't want anything to do with. But as I've tried to explain in the first five chapters, the issue is not rule, the issue is condemnation. If you are looking to the law to get you points with God, to get you into the family of God, you're condemned. It's not going to work. But if you put your trust in Jesus for grace, for salvation, you are a part of the family of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God. And as such, there is a particular way you're supposed to live. We can call it the fruit of the Spirit, chapter 5, or the law of Christ, we see here in verse number 2. Both have their roots in love. And when we look out for each other, when we carry each other's burdens, we are acting in love. And we are following the example of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Love requires, by the way, a second party. And we've talked about this before. We can say God is love because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. If God were only one being, he could not be loved. Love requires something else. We could say God loves, but we say God is love because God the Father loved God the Son. They love God the Spirit. There is love within God. Likewise, as God's people, if we are to be marked by love, we need each other so that we can love one another. Austin writes wonderfully in his book, Once long ago, our first parents were given life and language and love. They lived in innocent harmony with themselves and with their maker. But they did not want to live in harmony. They preferred isolation over communion. So they broke with their creator and they started breaking with each other. The first generation rebels against God and in the second generation fratricide enters the world. If I am right to characterize sin as the choice of isolation over communion, then it follows that sin amounts to a rejection of the essential social character of human beings. It should be no surprise then that we have trouble with authority, for authority is a reminder built into our world that we cannot make ourselves. Authority tells us you're not the boss, someone else is, and you are part of something much larger than yourself. So the first principle that Paul puts forward here is that we are part of a community, we're part of a family, we're part of the people of God, and as such we have responsibilities to help one another, to gently restore those who have been ambushed by sin, and to share the burdens of those in need. 
And if we do this, then we are fulfilling the law of Christ, which Paul also spoke of in chapter 5, verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbors yourself. That's the first principle. The second one complements the first, and that is that each member of the family of God has a responsibility to watch himself or herself. And this we see in verses 3, 4, and 5. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. One might be tempted to think, after the first two verses, that all of our responsibility is toward others, and that we have none to ourselves. We simply are to be giving to others and We'll let others take care, of our, take care of us. But Paul points to the place or the need for self-evaluation. Because in verse 3, there's always the possibility of self-deception. In verse number 4, that self-evaluation is not based on comparison. And then in verse number 5, personal, self, uh, personal self-evaluation has its focus on God's mission, God's calling in my life. Let's look at verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is connected to the last or to the end of chapter 5, verse 26, and to chapter 6, verse 1. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. My first reaction to what Paul writes in verses 1 and 2 is to see pride as resulting from thinking I'm better than somebody else. Oh, you poor brother, you poor sister, here, I'm a spiritual person, here, let me help you. But on second thought, could it be that the pride comes in here when I think to help somebody else is beneath me? Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan and the two men who walked on the other side. To help someone who had been attacked by bandits was beneath them. It would render them unclean. They were unwilling to do that for a fellow Jew. But no, Paul tells us that we are to restore. We are to carry each other's burdens. Unless we think we're too good for that, that that's beneath it. Let's hire someone to do that. Let's let the pastor do that. We need to evaluate and look at ourselves. How do we view ourselves? The question, though, that comes to me is how do I avoid self-deception? How am I to know if, in fact, I'm being a prideful person? Um... I don't think there's any surefire way okay, to avoid self-deception. But I think we should look at verse number four and do what Paul tells us here. Each one should test his own actions. Now, again, this raises all kinds of red flags with people because it seems to focus more on me than on someone else. And I thought I was supposed to be loving other people. And here it looks like I'm, it's all about me and testing myself. I end up spending all or most of my time testing my own actions rather than helping other people. But here we need to go back to what Paul said earlier in chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. This is it. The only thing that counts is faith. It's expressing itself through love. What I need to ask myself when I'm testing my actions is, is my faith in Jesus the Messiah? And is my faith expressing itself in Christ-like actions of love? That's what I need to ask myself. Otherwise, I think we'll just be staring in the mirror all the time or navel-gazing or just, just 
you know, every, every time we do something, we're wondering, am I doing the right thing? Did I do the right thing? We need to ask ourselves two questions. Is my faith in Jesus? And is that faith being expressed in love? I think it's very... I want to be careful. Yeah, I would say it's easy for us to imagine that we trust in Jesus, but not love other people. Now, that's not the way faith is supposed to be. Paul is clear to put the two things together. If I trust in Jesus, I'm part of the family of God, and I'm to love those who are also part of the family of God. This is to be our standard of behavior, not comparing myself with somebody else. Who cares what somebody else is doing? I need to ask myself, is my faith expressing itself in love? I mentioned this last Sunday that the idea of taking pride in oneself will be answered in verse number 14, and we will cover it when we get to that. But for now, the issue is that I'm to evaluate myself based on the standard of faith expressing itself through love. The third thing is in verse number 5, that personal self-evaluation has as its focus one's God-given mission in life. For each one should carry his own load. The implication is here that God has given to each one of his children something that we are to do with our lives. So I mentioned last Sunday the word burden in verse number two is something that is different than load. Load is sort of a backpack. Burden is something that is too much for one person to carry, and so you need someone to help you carry the burden. I think last week I emphasized that when it came to this backpack, this load, uh, a different aspect um, that is, asking people to help me with this backpack. I think we need to understand that each one of us has our own load. Maybe it is a cross to carry. Maybe it is a trial. Certainly we have callings that God has called us and gifted us for. I should not imagine that I do not have responsibilities in that regard. God has given to me, Damon Woods, a calling, and he has brought trials at different times in my life into my life. I am to deal with these things. Now, there may be times when I need help, but as Paul points out, we are to carry, we are to bear our own loads. In these three things, in verses 3, 4, and 5, we find the second principle fleshed out. That is, that while we are part of a community, while we are part of the family of God, we also have individual responsibilities, individual callings. We are not to lose our identity. We don't become zombies or cult members, if you wish. We become individual members of the family of God. So the first principle is you are not alone. The second principle is, in fact, you do have your own responsibilities. Now we come to verse number six, which speaks of one of the most sensitive issues, financial support for those in ministry. In this verse, we find a bridge of sorts that's connected to what comes before, verses one through five, and what comes after. Look, if you would, at verse number six. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Paul has just told the Galatians that each one is to carry his own load to fulfill his own God-given calling. This is what God wants me to do with my life. Now he balances out with the recognition that there are some who have the God-given calling of teaching in the church. This is what God has given them. 
to teach the word of God to the congregation. And Paul sets this out using the language of the fruit of the Spirit, that love empowered by the Spirit is expressed in goodness. In practice, it means sharing good things with our teachers. By the way, this brief verse, I think, gives us real insight into the early church and I think corrects some of the, the thinking that we may have about the early church. First of all, we, he doesn't say it directly, but we find that formal instruction was going on in the churches in Galatia. The words that Paul uses for the one who receives instruction and his instructor have the same root in Greek and they come into English as the catechumen and the catechist. That is, one who teaches and one who is taught. And this might be a reach, but I think it strongly implies that there was, in fact, formal instruction going on in doctrine in the various churches. So I think oftentimes we think that Paul went to these places, he started churches, and they left town, and then there's people just sort of floundering around, and then false teachers come in, so he writes these letters to correct things. No, he, in fact, set elders, teaching elders, to be the ones to teach these people. And Paul says they're to be taken care of. Second thing I would point out is that Paul's instructions seem to indicate that Christian teaching, even in the 50s AD, early on, was a full-time occupation that ruled out the possibility of earning money in another occupation. Now, I want to be careful here because we should take to heart Paul's example that Paul was a tent maker. He went around traveling and he earned his own way. And yet, he took the time in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to point out that those who teach in the church should be financially rewarded for what they do. The third thing I would point out is that in the teaching of the congregation and the supporting of the teachers, we should find unity in the church. The verb share comes from the familiar root koinonia. There is to be a fellowship of sharing as one teaches those who are being taught are to share the good things with the one who is teaching. There is a fellowship of sharing. I must confess, when I first came to this verse, I, I was sort of dreading it. I, you know me that I, anything that deals with money, I tend to get really nervous about. Um, and yet I must confess that I, I'm glad that this verse is here. Um, because it gives me an opportunity to express my gratitude to you, my brothers and sisters here at the Church on Melrose, for your financial support, for your fellowship, your sharing with me, and for your love. And without it, this would not be possible. In the verses that follow, we hear familiar words. Look, if you would, at verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, or his flesh, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. What does Paul have in mind here? I suppose a better question that we should ask ourselves is, does verse 6 stand alone? I mean, do we do verses 1 through 5 as a unit, and then 6 by itself, and then 7, 8, and then maybe 9 and 10 together as a unit, but 6 is alone? Um, I think very rarely do verses stand in isolation and so there is a connection here what does Paul mean? what can he mean by this? the metaphor is agricultural it is straightforward make no mistake about this God is not to be fooled the New English Bible tells us uh, there is a principle to things 
What you plant, you will harvest. One should not think that you can plant tomatoes and harvest grapes from it. This seems obvious enough. And yet, as one commentator put it wonderfully, there is a common tendency to think that there is one exception to this universal principle. Though it proves true for everyone else, it will not be true for me. I will not have to reap a harvest from the seeds I sow. I can sow whatever seed I want and still expect a good harvest. Yeah, that's true for all of you people, but certainly would not be true for me. Um, I'm reminded of what Jeremiah tells us. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We need to be very clear. God cannot be mocked. There is a principle to things. I would mention two things here. First of all, the immediate connection with verse number six. It is as though Paul is saying that giving practical support, sharing with those who are in ministry, particularly in teaching and preaching, if the Galatians did this, they would share in a good harvest. That is, there would be good teaching. And you don't want to say, you know, better pay, better preaching. But there should be a sense of if you share then you can expect that God, by his spirit, will in fact bring that back to you. As you sow, you will also reap. But I wouldn't limit this to verse number six. I see it as involving verses one through five as well. If one acts according to the flesh, there are consequences, destruction. If one acts according to the spirit, there are benefits, eternal life. Does this mean we can earn eternal life? I think Paul has made it clear enough thus far that it is only the work of Jesus and the grace of God that enables us to have eternal life. If we have the Spirit, we should live as those who have the Spirit. But what does Paul mean by sowing to please the flesh? We could look at the works of the flesh in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. What does he mean, sowing to please the Spirit? We could also look at the fruit of the Spirit, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But in this context, I think it means gently restoring those ambushed by sin, carrying the burdens of others, sharing the good things. Because Paul will add to this in verses 9 and 10. So when it comes to what Paul means here in verses 7 and 8, I I see it as referring to verse 6, but even beyond. And I want to be careful that I think People go around sort of wagging their fingers at people, or we do it to ourselves and say, look, you sowed this seed, and this is what you're going to get. Rather than making the application within the context here. Because while I do not want to weaken what Paul writes here, I am reminded of what we read in Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Lest we think it's a closed system, cause and effect. I did this terrible thing and so I'm going to reap the repercussions down the road. You may. But God is gracious and he does not treat us as our sins deserve. I think if we would be honest, we have sown many seeds that we have dreaded the harvest coming and God in his grace has killed those seeds 
and we have not been treated as our sins deserve. But let's not deceive ourselves. Let's not think God will always turn a blind eye to my sin. God cannot be mocked, Paul tells us. We should not mistake his grace for ignorance of our actions as though we did not know what we did. We should not mistake his grace for the fact that, or for the belief that he doesn't care what we did. He does, but God is gracious. And then verses 9 and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In a real sense, we come full circle to the first principle, the primary principle. We are not alone. We belong to the family of God. We have duties, we have responsibilities to the people of God. It's not a principle as such, but Paul reminds the Galatians, and we need to be reminded as well, that doing what we should do for one another can oftentimes be hard work. Oh, wait a minute, there's that word again, work. I I thought it was all about faith and trust and grace, and, and now you're talking about work. What's going on? We are not brought into the family of God because of what we do. But now that we have been brought into the family of God, our faith in Jesus is to be expressed in love, love for one another. We are to do what we are commanded. There's that word again, that authority. Because we are God's children, we are part of the family of God. We will come back to this, we'll revisit this next Sunday, but for your consideration, by doing good here, I think Paul very specifically has in mind the relationships in the congregation. Um, I don't think he's talking about doing good in general. You, you might make that as a secondary application, but the primary ap- application is in terms of relationship. This is one of the problems that Paul confronted Peter over. The idea that somehow in the church there are two classes of people. You've got the first class people, the Jews, and the second class people, the Gentiles. And Peter didn't act this way until the men from Jerusalem came and suddenly he's treating people differently. And that is unacceptable. By doing good, I think Paul speaks of our relationships with each other in the church. He made it so clear in chapter 4. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, in theory... In theology, this sounds good, but the practical working out of this reality takes hard work. And fatigue is a real danger. We can easily lose heart, run out of strength, when we come up against the same problem over and over and over again. One could make the case that Paul sounded a little fatigued, maybe even discouraged in chapter 4, verse 11. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Paul's like... I don't know. Did did I waste my time? Fatigue is a real problem. We need to encourage one another. The second thing I'd have you consider through the coming days, we'll come back to this next Sunday, the Lord willing, what begins in the congregation is to spill out over into the community. As we love one another, 
as we do good toward one another, as we have relationships within the congregation, that should spill out in our dealings with others. The church is the beginning of God's work of redeeming creation. We are the people of God. We are the pilot program. This is where it starts. It begins with us and then it is to spill out into all creation. We are to be the community of faith which expresses itself through love. Many suggest that the church needs to recapture a sense of community. I don't necessarily disagree. But I think we need to recapture something perhaps more important that will lead to community, and that is a sense of authority, an awareness of authority. Without authority, whatever sense of community we have will be either artificial or it will be wrong. We belong to each other under God's authority. And he tells us how to behave. And his spirit who lives within us is not merely some guest who every once in a while might pop a suggestion into our heads like, well, maybe you ought to do this. The spirit of God is God. And he is the authority in our lives. And we are to listen to him. That's not how we became God's people. Jesus did that for us. But now that we are God's people, Let's live as God's people, listen to God, and obey him. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. But each of us has a calling. Each of us has what God has given us. Let us be obedient to what he has given us. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we come to your word, we we come to realize how much the surrounding culture affects how we read it, how we understand it, or how we want to understand it. We want to focus on our relationship with you to the exclusion of others. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be under grace, not law. I pray that in some small measure what I've said is give understanding that we would come to see that we are under your authority. We are your people. We are citizens of your kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore there are things we're supposed to do and things we're not supposed to do. And the first thing we are to remember is that we belong to each other. We have responsibilities to each other. To care for each other. To love each other to carry each other's burdens. At the same time, you've given to each one of us a a job, a duty, a calling, and oftentimes a cross or a trial. May we be reminded of these things in the coming week and meditate on these things and begin by your grace to put them into practice. I thank you for this opportunity, this freedom that we have to gather to worship you as a congregation. May your spirit, your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?